Well, today we're going to be looking at the book of Nahum. And for those of you who've read ahead or perhaps familiar with scripture, you know that this is the account of God's wrath and judgment being poured out upon the people of Nineveh. A few weeks ago, you would have heard uh, Pastor Darrell speak about another prophet called Jonah, and uh, he was sent to pronounce judgment on Nineveh as well. Um, but, but when we read that account of Jonah, we see that Jonah is reluctant to go and uh, speak to Nineveh. Perhaps first and foremost, that's because he didn't particularly like the Ninevites. They were Gentiles, and the city of Nineveh was itself the capital of the Assyrians, a, a very large city. And they were known to be ruthless and uh, treat people harshly, particularly their enemies. If that's the reason that Jonah was reluctant to go, we could possibly understand that. But Jonah's main reason in not wanting to go is that he knew that God was a gracious God, that he was merciful, that he was slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What Pastor Darrell expounded on was that the book of Jonah was not so much about Nineveh or even about Jonah, although we can learn a great deal from both of those subjects. But this book was primarily about God. It was about how he was slow to anger, how he is abounding in love and how he is gracious and merciful and how the result is that these people repent and then God relents and he doesn't wipe Nineveh out. Fast forward a little over 100 years and today we're at Nineveh again. Same God, same people, different prophet. Let's just pause and pray. Father, thank you so much that we can open your word this morning. Thank you that you can speak to us through that. And Lord, I pray that as we move through Nahum, that you will speak to us this morning. That, Father, you will challenge each one of us, just like you've challenged me first and foremost. That we'll hear the truth of your word. And that, Lord, we'll have a desire to change our lives in order to draw closer to you. Speak to us, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've progressed through this series of the Minor Prophets, we've been trying to tell you a little bit about each of those prophets, uh, when and why they wrote what they did, um, and also a little bit about those prophets themselves. Unfortunately, Nahum's one of those cases where there isn't a lot of information on the prophet himself. We know very little about him. The information that we do have says that he's from a city, town, or village that's called Elkosh, and there have been four named possible locations for where this was, but the reality is we just don't know. Um, there's little more said about Nahum himself, but what we do know is that this book was written sometime after the destruction of Thebes uh, in 663 BC, as Nahum mentions that in chapter 3 verse 8. And as this is a prophecy regarding the destruction of Nineveh, well, we know then that this was written prior to that happening and this happened. Nineveh was destroyed in 612 BC. So with all the information that we have, it is most likely that Nahum was written between 663 and 654 BC. As we read through Nahum, we may think that it's only about the destruction of this great pagan city, but it's more than that. It is again a book about God. It speaks about the coming destruction of Nineveh, but it speaks about who God is in the midst of that as well. It speaks about his provision also. And Nahum literally means comforter. And his coming in a pronouncement of judgment upon Nineveh brings great comfort to the people of Israel. 
As I said earlier, when we read Jonah, we find God is slow to anger. We find he's abounding in love. We find he's gracious and merciful. And this is the way we like to picture God. In fact, most Christians in this day and age would describe God in exactly that way. But our God is constant. He is unchanging. He is true to himself and he is true to his words. And so those attributes are only some of the attributes of God and some of the many attributes of God. In Nahum, we see some of the attributes of God that we're not so happy to talk about. And we're not happy to discuss them. We're not happy to disclose them to people. But we hear God is jealous. God is avenging and God is wrathful. I've no doubt that there are a few of you who are already concerned, but what we have to do is to honor scripture. And if this is what is said about God, we must accept that it's true. Of course, don't take it from me. Go to scripture and read it for yourself. Make sure that I'm not just making things up or any speaker for that matter. But in this case, that's exactly what is said. Look at Nahum 1.2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath. For his enemies. Remember that this is a message that is given to Nahum by God to speak to the Ninevites, and Nahum is faithful to God's word to him. He takes the message that he is given and proclaims it, delivering it exactly as God told him to. God is jealous. It says that quite clearly. And when we think about jealousy, we think about this emotional feeling that we or people have when they are envious of what others have, what they have achieved the partner or person that they are with, how successful they are. And our jealousy is driven by a desire to have or be who they are or what they have. We want to be like them. But that's not the jealousy that is spoken of here. We're talking about the God who is the creator of all things, who holds everything together in creation, who has creation literally at his beck and call. And how could he possibly be jealous of what someone or something has? It's simply not possible because it is literally all his to start with. And so when we speak about the jealousy of God or of God being jealous, it's that jealousy that exists in a strong relationship. And possibly the closest thing we have on this earth is that jealousy that exists between a husband and a wife. And this isn't actually a bad thing, although it sounds like it is. This type of jealousy means they will do everything to protect the sanctity of their marriage. They are one men women and one women men. When they commit to each other, it is for life. And they take all possible steps that they can do to protect that commitment to each other, to protect their partner and to protect the sanctity of their marriage. This is how God is jealous for us. Think about the imagery that is used. I've just used that example of, of a husband and wife. And this is the same imagery that is used for Christ and his church. We're called his bride. Think also of the imagery of the Israelites uh, in the book of Hosea, where the Lord is said to be married to Israel. And so God loves us as his creator, as our only true God. And because he is the only true God and he knows he is the only true God, he is jealous for us. He wants to protect our relationship with him. He knows the best thing for us is to be in relationship with him because ultimately that will allow us to be with him for eternity in glory. And that's what's occurring here in Nahum. 
He's doing all he can to protect the relationship of his people. Our God is an avenging God. And when we look at Deuteronomy 32 verses 35 and 41, we see that it is God's to avenge. It is his to repay. And he will take his vengeance on his adversaries and repay those who hate him. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see God's people praying for him to avenge them when they are attacked by other nations. And Psalm 94, 1 and 2 says, O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. Our God is a just and holy God. And because he is holy, he is compelled to act. He will take vengeance on people who oppose him, his law, and his people. The God we know and worship, who is a huge refuge of strength to those who know and trust him. He pours out his love and favour upon them. But for those who oppose him or who, or who attack his people, he'll be like an overwhelming flood, which is totally unstoppable. It is these people, those who oppose him or his people, who will face God's wrath. Or in some translations, it says they'll face his righteous anger. And verse 3 tells us that God is indeed slow to anger and great in power. But when his anger is kindled, he will not clear the guilty. They'll experience his judgment and wrath. God will not stand by forever. And let his people suffer. His anger has been kindled against Nineveh. And who can stand before his indignation? Could it be that the Ninevites, having once experienced God's grace and mercy, believed that he wouldn't act against them on this occasion? It would seem that they believed themselves to be secure, but that security was not in God. It was in their other gods and in their strength of number, in their military ability, in the security and strength of their city. That security was ill-placed because in the presence of an almighty, all-powerful God, it makes no difference. Nahum 1.7 tells us that the Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble for those who take refuge in him. But that is not the Ninevites. Their faith is found in other things. But God will bring all of it to an end. God knows the plots of the leaders, but he will ensure all of their plans fail. But more than that, God will take decisive and final action against them. Listen to his judgment on the king of Assyria in Nahum 1.14. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. God is going to bring this king's dynasty to an end. He will have no more descendants. The gods that he honoured and sacrificed to and paid homage to will not help him. And these gods will be totally destroyed and their places of worship will be torn down. The king himself will die. God has prepared his grave. And because God has found this nation to be vile, that is why he's taking action. They are morally corrupt. 
they are wicked. And God is their judge. It is God who's decided on this judgment and what is to happen to Nineveh. And Nahum describes this in detail in chapter 2. What we know from history is that the Medes and Babylonians united to attack Nineveh in 612 BC. And there is such a contrast in the first few two verses, sorry, of uh, chapter 1. Uh, when we look, uh, sorry, chapter 2. When we look at verse 1, it says, The scatterers come up against you, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect your strength. This is the rally cry. The enemy is approaching. Those on the wall see them coming and they rally their soldiers. Orders are issued and they yell back and forth across the ramparts. Final battle positions are taken up. Reverse, reserve supplies are brought close to the wall so that they're readily to hand, so they can be accessed quickly during the battle. They're called to rally their strength. There's a great confidence in the midst of this. And I'd imagine there would have been a lot of noise, yelling, war cries, weapons rattling as they move backwards and forwards. There's this huge expectation as well that these people of Assyria will triumph once again as they always have. But in the midst of this is verse 2. And this is the Lord speaking. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. I'm not sure what Israel was thinking in the midst of this, but Nahum comes, God's comforter. This is Israel who is being comforted. God is speaking to them in the midst of this preparation for battle. God says to Israel, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to reunite you as a people. You are no longer going to have to fear anything from the Assyrians. They will be no more. And God has used the, his, the Assyrians historically as his instrument of punishment against Israel when they turned against him and were sinning against him. But the Assyrians made themselves liable to God and his judgment and punishment when they became ruthless. And God is now going to remove this burden from Israel. He's going to take this yoke off their neck. And the army comes against Nineveh. It's a formidable army. It is greatly um, equipped. It is very strong. They have shields of bronze, chariots with steel bosses on their wheels, making light flash off them as they dash backwards and forwards through the streets. But how is it that they're able to do such a thing? How can they dash backwards and forwards through the streets? How is this possible when Nineveh had such a strong fortress, such an impregnable wall? They believed their wall could not be breached. But their confidence was ill-founded. Nahum 2, 5 and 6 says, He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. The he referred to here is the king of Assyria. He gathers his best officers and calls them to defend the wall, but it's already too late. They stumble as if drunk. Instead of fighting like true heroes, their confidence has been shattered and they stagger about not knowing what to do because the wall and a large portion of the residence and the fortress is destroyed. It's gone. You see, 
The Kosher River flows through Nineveh. And the invaders, when they came in, they dammed the wall uh, of, and stopped the river from flowing into the city. And when they decided to invade, they actually knocked that dam down. And the force of the water coming down that river broke through the wall and destroyed the fortress. And as a result, the Medes and the Babylonians were easily able to enter the city. And they went through and killed at will. The city is totally destroyed. Nothing is left. It is totally plundered. And Nahum may even seem to be taunting them when in verse 11 he asks, Where is the lion's den? Where is the place for the clubs, for the cubs? And you see, Assyria used the image and standard of the lion in a lot of their artwork. They saw themselves as mighty lions. They saw themselves attacking their prey and completely devouring their captives. What we know of lions is that they take enough food for themselves and their cubs. But when it came to the Assyrians, they were ruthless. They took more than they needed and they amassed wealth beyond measure. But all of it comes to naught because their actions cause God to move against them. Nahum 2.13 says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no longer. God was against them. Over a century earlier, God had sent Jonah to warn Nineveh, and they had repented. How had they come to fall so far? Nineveh is destroyed. There will be no more weapons, no more residents, no more messengers declaring their victories. The other attribute of God is that God is just. And it's hard to think about what happens to Nineveh and then be able to say that God is just. But Nahum provides some reasons why Nineveh would be defeated while this judgment, why this judgment comes against them. And this book was written to denounce the tyranny of the Assyrians, especially in relation to God's people. Judgment came because they were ruthless. Name 3, 1 to 3 outlines what they were like. The Assyrians were known to be very clever diplomats. They made promises um, to other nations, to other cities, which they never intended to honour. They lied to them and then they broke those promises, resulting in unfettered bloodshed. They slaughtered everyone. They had no regard for age or sex, anything. It was total annihilation. And then they would stack the corpses up beside the roads like logs as a warning to anyone who would ever oppose them. And there's many other things they did which were truly horrendous. They'd also given themselves over to idolatry when we read about idolatry in scripture, it's often referred to as a prostitution. And this is the imagery that Nahum uses. But in this case, it's very appropriate. Nineveh's greatest god was Ishtar, the goddess of sexual pleasure, fertility and war. And their commitment to this evil god made them greedy, lustful and violent. Whatever you commit to your time to, whatever you focus on, that's what you become. What you, de what you believe determines how you behave. Is certainly true of Nineveh. And in these final verses, 8 to 19, 
We see that Nineveh was also proud and confident in their own strength and ability. They thought that they would be able to resist any attack. But Nahum says, the battle will be an easy one. In fact, it'll be so easy. It's like figs falling into one's mouth. The once fearsome warriors of Assyria will have their strength drained. They will be weak. They'll be afraid. They'll be unable to form rank and fight when they see their great wall and the fortress form. There is no way to bar the gates. The wall has fallen. There's no way to repair it. There's no water to quell the fires which have been lit. And the enemy will pour in like locusts, devouring and destroying everything. The king and his leaders, the king of Assyria, their confidence will be gone. They'll be like grasshoppers and locusts in the cold, slow or unable to move. And the Assyrians who survive this battle, they'll be scattered, never to return, never to be united again. There is no one to rescue them. There's no allies. There's no help. The destruction is total and complete. There is rejoicing at the fall of Nineveh because who has not felt the evil that they brought upon others. God's anger is kindled and he punishes nations that are inhumane, brutal, morally corrupt and wicked. But how did Nineveh get to this point? It was only a century before that Jonah had come to them and the entire city, the entire city, repented before God. They went from a city devoted to God to end up in a place totally opposed to God. Evil. How is this even possible? I believe this goes right back to Genesis and the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis 4-7 says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. His desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door. And for me, this is part of the lesson from Nineveh. This is a city that at one point had this realization that they needed to submit to God. And yet a hundred years later, they have a reputation for being a nation of the most ruthless, bloodthirsty, immoral, evil people. I believe one by one. They gave themselves over to the sin that was crouching at the door. They came, became a nation that was proud and confident of their own strength and ability. They no longer needed God. They could do it themselves. And unfortunately, so often it's the same for us. I believe there's a question we need to ask ourselves. Is it God or me who is the focal point of my life? We don't like facing the hard questions, but I'm asking you to do that now. Is your life one of comparing yourself to others or is your life about you or is your life about God? Nineveh was a city, a people who once submitted to God, but something changed. They became proud, arrogant, self-serving and self-sufficient. All they did was to serve themselves or their nation. Are we any different? Even when we think about the church context, 
There's people who are proud and arrogant within churches everywhere. There's this pride of spirituality. These are the people who speak in a different accent or tone when they pray or speak about spiritual things. They spiritualize every conversation. They speak about their spiritual gifts. And usually it's a gift of prophecy, a gift of apostleship, a gift of being a teacher. Rarely, if ever, is it the more or less showy gifts, the more humble gifts. These are the people who look down on those who don't share the same beliefs as them. There's also people who suffer from the pride of knowledge. These are the people who are unteachable. They're highly opinionated. They like to use big words or words of another language so they can explain them to you. They try to prove people wrong. They don't listen to ideas or suggestions of wisdom from others. They're defensive when corrected and they rarely, if ever, apologize. They're argumentative and critical of others. There's also those who have pride of power. They are people who are controlling, they're legalistic, they won't submit to authority. They are self-dependent. They don't need anyone or anything else. They are the decision makers and will protest when any decision is made in their absence or against their will. They are boastful and arrogant. They believe things revolve around them. And this list can continue, and in fact it does. If you're interested, I have a PDF which has about 40 pages of the discoveries that a young man had when he looked at his own pride in his life and he developed this list. That's where I've extracted some of this from. I'm happy to email it to you if you like. But when we think about people who are proud, we're talking about those who have a greater focus on themselves or their ego. It is an unhealthy thing when we do or say things for the purpose of having people praise us or to make us feel good. We are showing pride when we put ourselves ahead of someone else. Pride wants recognition. It wants praise. It wants glory. It wants to be talked about. Pride elevates our opinions of ourselves to a level that is not accurate. We start to believe we can do things on our own in our strength and our abilities. And when someone questions or challenges that, we burr up and protest. Many will tell you that you should look out for yourself. And on the surface, it seems to be something that each of us should pursue. But this is not a biblical pursuit. If you are a Christian, if you are determined to follow God, then your life is all about getting to know Jesus. If we persist, if we continue to pursue God, it becomes clearly evident that knowing him is key to understanding who I am and making peace with myself. My self-worth is found in the fact that Jesus died for me, nothing else. And although I fail and mess up, I find that he's a gracious and forgiving God who kills the fattened calf. Getting all of heaven to rejoice and places upon me the robe of his righteousness and he adopts me as his son, the son of the most high God, simply because I acknowledged all he had done for me through Jesus Christ. I am significant because I am adopted I am his son. My life has purpose because I live for his glory and I bring glory to him when I fulfill the role and purpose he has for me. He has the, a role and purpose for each one of us. And why do I do that? Because I understand the terrible cost of the cross and the love which motivated Jesus to die for me. 
when we think about Nahum, his life and the message that he brought, there are parallels today and we have a choice. We can be like the people of Nineveh. We can be self-sufficient, believing in our own strength and our abilities. We can elevate ourselves above everyone else, treating people harshly and disrespectfully. We would be proud, arrogant and self-righteous, just like Nineveh. When we're like that, what we do isn't to encourage and elevate others. It is self-serving. It's about building our ego. It's to make us someone in other people's eyes. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. And so our lives are either about us or it's about God. Simply put, we need him. The people of Nineveh failed to realize that. Sin is crouching at the door. It is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The challenge today, ask God to reveal to you any attitude that is not of him. Sin is contrary to the nature of God and we are made in his image. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Some of us made that, commit God, made that commitment to God some time ago. And for one reason or another, we have fallen away from him. Let's return to him. Remember, whatever you focus on, is what you become. Where is your focus? Let's repent, asking for his forgiveness. And let's put to death our old self, that self which serves me, which serves my ego, my desires, my wants, my pleasures. And let's look to serve him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word to us. Thank you that it has challenged me. And Lord, my desire is that we will just come to that place where we resubmit to you, Lord, where we ask you to be Lord of our life. And Lord, it becomes more about you than about ourselves. Father, I ask that by power of Holy Spirit, you'll reveal to us anything which prevents us from being all we can be for you. And I ask, Lord, that you will break us, that those of us, including me, Lord, who have shown pride, who've been self-sufficient, who've believed we can do it on our own. Lord, please strip that away and let us realize we are only truly complete in you and the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross gives us the identity that we need. Sons and daughters of the most high God, what else could we possibly desire? And Lord, let us live in that each and every day, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless one and all. Thank you.